This is Democracy, a podcast about the people of the United States, a podcast about citizenship, about engaging with politics and the world around you, a podcast about educating yourself on today's important issues and how to have a voice in what happens next. Welcome to our new episode of This is Democracy. Today's episode focuses on the German elections, which will be on September 26th. These are some of the most important elections of this year and perhaps some of the most important elections of the early 21st century. Germany, as everyone knows, is one of the most important actors in Europe and one of the most important international actors in the world today, a key U.S. partner but also a major actor in its own right with regard to China and many other issues that we all think about, particularly for the future of democracy, our subject each week. We're joined today by an individual who has been thinking about these issues for a long time, writing about them and speaking uh, across the country and across the world. This is Jeffrey Rathke. He's the president of the American Institute for Contemporary German Studies at Johns Hopkins University in Washington, D.C. Jeff, thanks for joining us today. A real pleasure to be with you. Thank you. Prior to his role as president of the American Institute for Contemporary German Studies, Jeff was at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, where he was the deputy director and a senior fellow for their Europe program. And before that, he had a 24-year-long career as a foreign service officer, performing many different roles relevant for our discussion today. He was deputy director of the Office of European Security and Political Affairs and duty officer in the White House Situation Room. He oversaw and served in Berlin as Minister-Counselor for Political Affairs at the U.S. Embassy from 2006 to 2009. So he has both the knowledge of policymaking around these issues and on-the-ground knowledge uh, within Germany. Before we turn to our discussion with Jeff, of course, we have, as always, our scene-setting poem from Mr. Zachary Suri. And uh, Zachary, your poem this week includes some German in it, yes? That's correct. Okay, well, let's hear it. Something we should remember having done. After class, I rush along the highway, an autobahn but poorly patched over. The governor, he wants my germs floating halfway across the room. The governor, he wants my classmates losing their bodies to his religion. The land, it wants us to melt back into insignificance. It is comforting to know, in a world that compounds misery with factlessness almost as thoughtlessly as you compound nouns, it is comforting to know, even as we fail so miserably, that someone remembers the definition of decency, die Bedeutung der Höflichkeit, the meaning of civility. Ah, we helped your guilt grow into a miracle. Now you school us in generosity when your daughter, your leader of the free world, saves a million souls. It can seem to us oddly familiar, like this is something we should remember having done. It is comforting, whatever passes, whatever comes of us, this now middle-aged titan, die Seligkeiten vergangene Zeiten, es gibt noch ein Technokrat in Berlin. I love the ending, Zachary. Noch ein Technokrat in Berlin. What is your poem about? My poem is really about the uh, connection between American democracy and, and German democracy and the many ways in which uh, German democracy seems to better reflect uh, American values sometimes. Absolutely. Uh, Jeff, as we as Americans watch these elections coming up, um, why are they so important? Why, why should we be paying attention and what should we be looking for? Well, I, I think the, the 
first thing that is in some ways obvious uh, about Germany is that it's the largest country in the European Union. The European Union, of course, is a block of around 450 million people, one of the most economically uh, advanced spaces on earth. And Germany plays a role that is you know, defining in many ways um, for Europe. So, so the direction that Germany takes uh, will have an impact not only on the 80 million German citizens, uh, but on the rest of the rest of Europe, and indeed on countries like the United States or the UK that are closely partnered with it. So, inertia uh, for those who've studied physics is not just a body at rest tending to stay at rest. Stay at rest. It's a body in motion tending to stay in motion, and so. The, uh, the trajectory that Germany is on and whether that changes will have uh, an enormous impact um, uh, on the transatlantic relationship and on uh, many, many people um, around the world. And how are German elections similar and different from U.S. elections? One obvious point is there are more parties in Germany. They tend to have coalition governments. Um, give us a little more of, you, of your sense of what the key similarities and differences are. Yeah, well, it's a it's a proportional representation system. Um, that's the fundamental um, uh, thing, and we can get into the mechanics of it. But but basically, what that means is that there is you know a percentage of uh, the Bundestag is uh, equivalent to the um, the votes that are you know cast uh, on election day for individual parties. Um, it's a mixed proportional representation system, which means that. Um, you have you know, a number of uh, 298, uh, 99 um, uh, directly elected seats. That's a little bit similar to our congressional elections or the British first-past-the-post system. Uh, but then the rest are made up of proportionally represented um, uh, seats. And so you wind up with coalition governments, as you said, and it, it is increasingly the case that the political landscape is more fragmented in Germany. So you have a larger number of parties in the Bundestag now than you did 30 or 40 years ago, to, to make that even more concrete. You know, for most of Germany's post-war history, there were three parties in the Bundestag. There was the center-right Christian Democratic Union, Christian Social Union. There was the center-left Social Democratic Party. And then there was the economically liberal uh, Free Democratic Party. And you know, until the 1980s, those were the three parties that determined Germany's political fate. Um, a fourth party came uh, along in the 80s, the Greens. After a reunification in the 90s, there was a uh, further left party, which was in some, which was sort of the heir of the East German Communist Party. Now you have the far right uh, alternative for Germany party. And what all that means is you've got, um, you know, the votes of German, uh, the German electorate spread out over a larger um, spectrum in some ways, and it makes forming coalitions harder and harder. And just in terms of the mechanics of voting in Germany, uh, the vote is on September 26th. Is, is it all on one day? And, and one other point to, to ask about with regard to that, the constituencies for the Bundestag, um, how are they drawn? Do, do they have a gerrymandering system like ours, or how does that work? 
they don't have a gerrymandering system. Um, uh, so that, that is, you know, they are much more contiguous and you don't have the same kinds of stretched out districts the way you'll find across the American um, uh, political map. Uh, uh, the, the voting generally happens on one day, although this year, as we've seen elsewhere with the pandemic, there are expanded uh, vote by mail possibilities. And so there's a, there's a likelihood that a significant proportion of the votes will be cast by mail, although it'll be hard to tell until it's all over what exactly that percentage is going to be. The, the other main thing is that voters cast two votes. So you are, you, when you walk into a polling place, you cast a, you cast a vote for um, a candidate who is directly elected to represent uh, your district, and you cast a vote for the party that you prefer. And that's where this mixed um, uh, proportional representation system comes from. The first vote is going to determine who represents your district. The second one is going to determine the overall balance of power in the Bundestag. And, uh, and so that, uh, that system has been a hallmark of, of the German approach uh, since 1949. So, so for anyone who's been remotely following this election would know that it's been a remarkably volatile election season with three different chancellor candidates, three different parties at one point leading in the polls. Why is that? Well, I think this election is happening at the confluence of, of several major events. The, the first and, uh, and most uh, obvious one is that the incumbent chancellor, uh, Angela Merkel, is not running for re-election. And, and so the normal kind of bonus, if you want to call it that, or the, the normal boost that you get from incumbency doesn't really pertain. So, so that's, that's the first source, I think, of, of uncertainty. Uh, the second source is the fact that we are, well, People thought we were emerging from a pandemic, perhaps in the spring. It's quite clear that we have not yet emerged from it. But um, the the pandemic effect on our societies, on our economies, um, has has changed over the last eighteen months. And when the election campaign began, it was at a time when it seemed like you know the rally round the flag effect of of having a global crisis. Uh, where the German government was exercising, you know, pretty impressive leadership, um, that 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 was waning, and so Germany was reverting in that way after the crisis, uh, the perceived crisis of the pandemic. It was reverting to the the more diffuse um, political support um, that had characterized the last couple of years. the The third factor, I think, is that the the nomination uh, process for within Merkel's own party um, became extremely complicated. Um, there was a battle over the par- over the party chairmanship, which was um, you know uh, extremely closely run. Um, there was then after that a uh, a battle for who would actually be the leading candidate, the candidate for chancellor in the election. That was a fight between. Um, Merkel's CDU party and the sister party, the Bavarian CSU. And so you had all these things happen at the same time um, in a way that, um, you know, sort of shocked the the political system uh, into a different state um, where Merkel had is remains extremely popular. Uh, you know, her, depending on how you measure it, her popularity is still off the charts 
um, compared to anyone else in the German political system. But her her direct heirs in her party are not enjoying that. In fact, they're now in second place uh, in the polls. And, and do you see, Jeff, a movement to the left in German politics? You, you made the argument about the fragmentation of the political landscape. And for many years, you and others, uh, many, many experts have spoken about the rise of the right uh, in in Germany and elsewhere, including in the United States. And in Germany, this is the off day, right? The uh, alternative for, yeah. for Germany. Um, but it, it seems the narrative in the last few weeks about this election has been the rise of the left, the SPD and the Green Party. Um, so so how, how should we understand this? Yeah, um, well, that's, a, that's a good point. I, I think the place to start, first of all, is that approximately 75% of German voters um, support parties that could loosely be defined as mainstream. That is, on the center-left side, the the Social Democrats and the Greens. On the center-right side, again, I'm speaking very broadly, the, the Christian Democrats and the Free Democrats, the liberals. So I think that's important to start off with. You know, you do have voters on the right and the left extremes, but they are still, you know, a distinct minority. So that centrism at the heart of German politics has remained pretty persistent um, over time. Now, is German politics moving to the left? I, I think you can say one thing about the right, and that is it has plateaued. It reached you know, around 12%. It hovers there um, in the opinion polls, um, has not expanded its appeal beyond that uh, hardcore of support, although there are some parts of Eastern Germany where um, they are able to mine a bit more um, uh, disaffection, and uh, and they do they do well lo- in a localized way. On the le- if you look at the the opinion polls, depending on the day, there might be a majority for a left wing government, the SPD, the Greens, and and the 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 party called the Left, the post communist party, but. You know, it's a pretty narrowly run thing. Uh, so I wouldn't say you've a shift to the left, but what I do think you can see in the Green Party, and 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 even though they've had some troubles in the last few weeks, they are still polling almost to twice as uh, high as they did at the last election. The the Greens are a different kind of leftism. Of course, they have leftist roots um, and pacifist roots, indeed, at their at their origins. Um, but what they have turned into over the last few years is a much more pragmatically focused party that is not um, does not reject market solutions. Um, that is much more appealing to uh, to centrist voters, and especially as uh, the the deep sense of crisis um, surrounding um, climate change and environmental policy. Uh, as that uh, spreads in German society, uh, I think there's a greater willingness to put uh, those ecological questions at the heart of German policymaking. I'm not sure that's exactly a left, uh, a leftist thing, um, but it is certainly um, increasingly, you know, characterizing the the political debate in Germany. What, what should we expect uh, on Sunday from the election results? I think the thing to expect is that there will be uncertainty on election night about who is going to form and who will lead the next government in Germany. And the reason for that is 
that uh, as we talked about the fragmentation of the political uh, landscape, it is highly likely that three parties will be required to uh, form a coalition with a working parliamentary majority. And that hasn't been done in the last uh, several decades in Germany. Uh, it's always been possible to form a two-party coalition. And so negotiating a three-party coalition is going to be more challenging. Um, and there will be different options. Um, you will have the probably the possibility of a, a majority led by the Social Democrats with the Greens and the, the liberal FDP. But it will also probably be mathematically possible for the Christian Democrats, even if they finish second, to form a government with the Greens and the Liberals as well. So this is going to be a complex, multi-layered, multi-directional uh, negotiation that is going to be, I think, pretty fluid, at least in the first few days. And it could take, you know, there could be at least one attempt at forming a coalition that fails. We saw this in 2017, by the way, where there was a negotiation that lasted months for the uh, CDU, for Merkel, to form a government with the Greens and the FDP. That failed, ultimately, because the FDP um, uh, walked out of the talks. And, and so you could have something like that happen again this time. And we may reach the end of this calendar year without a new German government sworn in, and that would mean that Merkel will remain in a caretaker capacity until a new government is um, constituted and uh, elected by the new Bundestag. This is a really important point, Jeff, and I'm so glad you brought it up, uh, that, the, that the Merkel government, and Merkel will remain Bundeskanzler uh, until there's a new government. So they don't have a situation where, similar to the United States, where we have a date when a new government must form and the old government must go out. Uh, she stays on until there's a new government, correct? Yeah, yeah, that's right. And now, you know, she is not going to have the same latitude to break new ground in this kind of interregnum, but she will remain head of government and, and will have the authorities necessary to carry out the business of state. But without a voter mandate to do anything new, I think you know, it will be a very, uh, she'll interpret that relatively narrowly and uh, just try to stay the course rather than you know, do anything you know uh, remarkable or or new in in those uh, few months uh, while we wait for the next government. And, and Jeff, will it matter a lot which kind of coalition is formed, especially from uh, an, an American point of view, looking at Germany and thinking about our important, wide-ranging relationship with Germany? Will Will it matter a lot whether it's an SPD-led government or a CDU? Um, how should we think about that? It does matter. Uh, it matters in a in a slightly um, indirect way. Of course, if you have a center left government, its priorities are going to be different from those of a center right government. And I think, in particular, when you think about um, things like economic policy and taxation, um, you know, there you have um, you know quite a divergence of views um, uh, among the mainstream parties on the specific elements of of uh, environmental policies and climate change and the prominence that those should play in policymaking, that's also going to be different. So there will be a coalition agreement, which is always hammered out between the, the parties forming a government. And that agreement will try to anticipate as many of the issues for the next four years as possible, because everybody wants to get down in writing 
you know, the things that they are uh, achieving for their party and their party's interests in advance. And they will take that to their members where necessary um, to get approval to enter the government. But what I find interesting about Germany is not just the things that are written down in, uh, in the coalition agreement, it's the things you can't anticipate. And if you look at the major changes in German policy over Merkel's period of chancellorship, for example, what you see are that the biggest things, the longest lasting impacts uh, are from things that were not anticipated in the coalition agreement. So let's take 2011, uh, after the Fukushima uh, disaster in Japan, um, Merkel decided to speed up the, um, the shift, the German shift out of nuclear power. Um, that has had enormous consequences for the German economy, for Germany's energy policy, and for things like Nord Stream 2, if you want to talk about, um, you know, gas and relations with Russia and so forth. Um, you know, there's a direct connection between the, um, the, the, what they call the Atomausstieg, the move away from nuclear power, and all of these decisions. That was not in a coalition agreement that it would be speeded up in reaction to uh, you know, a, a nuclear accident in Japan, but it is something that Germany is still having to you know, uh, deal with the consequences of today. Um, similarly, the refugee and migration crisis in 2015, um, also, you know, how could you anticipate that in a coalition agreement? Uh, and if you think about the economic measures uh, in Europe to deal not only with uh, COVID um, and the issuance of, uh, of debt by the European Union, but also if you go back further to 2008, 2009, and then the early 2010s, the reaction to the Eurozone crisis and the debt uh, problems of countries like Greece, um, Ireland, Portugal, all of those things were improvisations. Um, and so those deep impacts on Germany's course and on Europe's course are likely to arise from things that people are not able to predict when they sit down this fall to write a new coalition agreement. So change comes, but it doesn't come just from the signature on the coalition document. It comes from how you react um, to future crises. It's such an important point. The personalities uh, matter quite a lot, and often it's not even the ideologies they're attached to or the parties they're attached to, but how they think about particular issues. That that's, seems to me it's always been the case, especially in transatlantic relations. Uh, when a Helmut Schmidt couldn't get along with a Jimmy Carter, that made a, that made for problems in U.S.-German relations. In a in contrast, right, the close relationship between a President uh, George H. W. Bush and Chancellor Helmut Kohl certainly facilitated some major unseen changes. So, so I think your point about personalities is so important, Jeff. Yeah, it's something that I think we're also going to have, uh, we will have a new personality at the head of the German government. In some ways, the social democratic uh, chancellor candidate, Olaf Scholz, has been the finance minister for the last four years. So he's pretty well known in governing circles and has a uh, track record um, of, of working with his international counterparts. The, the Christian Democrats candidate, Armin Laschet, he is the governor of Germany's largest state, North Rhine-Westphalia, population of about 20 million people, but uh, it's also the, the most prosperous state in Germany. Uh, but he doesn't have the same kind of um, you know, day-to-day governing um, uh, interactions with European and especially with American counterparts. So 
you know, the personalities and how they will develop, uh, as you said, Jeremy, that's, that's uh, something we, we can only guess at at this point, um, and, uh, and we'll have to uh, live through it. Jeff, this has been so helpful, and you've given us such a really thoughtful overview. Uh, be- before we close, Zachary, I just wanted to ask you, you've been following this incredibly closely, more closely than many of my graduate students <laughs> and others. Why is the German election so interesting to you as a 16-year-old who's interested in democracy? Why does it matter so much to you? It's fascinating to me to 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 watch another system go through such a complex election cycle uh, that, in many ways, has 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 implications on a similar scale uh, to the American elections uh, in the past few years. But in in a sense, even though the German political system has its own pathologies and its own problems, uh, it, it it it's comforting to me, at the very least, to watch at least some semblance of a functioning democracy <laughs> operate on on such a large scale. That's right. And there's so much we can learn uh, about democracy, not just by looking at ourselves, but by looking at other democracies, uh, other countries that in some ways do things better. As, as Jeff has described it, you could argue that the German system is more representative um, and, and that there's a lot we could learn. Jeff, last question to you before we close. What what do you encourage Americans to learn from this election? Well, I think the the most important thing for American audiences to keep in mind is that you know the international partnerships the United States built throughout the post-war uh, era, they've you know gone through some rough times, but they are still at the heart and I think you could argue they are increasingly important as the balance of global power shifts. Um, if you are looking at this from the point of view of um, you know democracy and uh, the, the the contrasts and and even the rivalries between democracies and autocracies if that's your framework um, or if you think about this in more you know traditional uh, terms of the United States partnership with its um, you know allies and partners around the world no matter which which way you look at this uh, the United States is is more dependent now on its partners like Germany to accomplish its objectives in the world. That is not going to change. In fact, it's going to accelerate. And, and so uh, you know, the government that takes shape and takes office in Berlin is going to be more important um, for American interests than uh, has been the case in previous decades. And so that's why it's worth paying attention, I think. And, and that's why uh, we will probably have to work harder in the future between Washington and Berlin and other capitals to set achievable priorities together and, and pursue them in ways that we can, um, we can all support. That's really hard in the best of times. Um, it's even harder now, but I think that's uh, what makes, at least for me, that's what makes um, this, uh, this work interesting. That's so well said. And of course, Jeff, it's why we need uh, well-trained foreign service officers like you 
Uh, and uh, I always encourage our listeners uh, to get involved in the Foreign Service. It's a wonderful career path. And as you've just laid out, there's, there's such important work ahead. One of the themes of our podcast each week is that democracy is about partnerships and cooperation. And, and you've given us a, a wonderful and really helpful way of thinking about that with regard to transatlantic relations and U.S.-German relations in particular. Uh, Jeffrey Rathke, thank you for joining us uh, this week. It's been a real pleasure to have you on the podcast. It's been terrific to be with you. Thanks so much, Jeremy, and thanks, Zachary, and uh, wish uh, you and your listeners all the best. And by the way, um, we'll be uh, doing a series of events next week, uh, AICGS.org, if people are interested in uh, uh, more on the outcome of the German elections and their impact on uh, on the United States and the transatlantic relationship. And we'll be doing our own podcast uh, series. Uh, we have a podcast called The Zeitgeist. Uh, you can find it on our website. And we'll be... Uh, having a series of guests uh, in the coming weeks to look at different aspects of German policymaking uh, that will be you know, important for, uh, for the next government and for the future. So um, I'm really glad to be with you today, and uh, I, I look forward to remaining in dialogue with, uh, with you all and, uh, and hopefully with your listeners. Absolutely. And I know I will be uh, paying very close attention to your events because uh, I'll be trying to figure out and understand what's going on, and you are one of the best sources that we have. So again, thank you, Jeff. Thank you, Zachary, for your wonderful poem. And most of all, thank you to our listeners for joining us for this week of This Is Democracy. This podcast is produced by the Liberal Arts ITS Development Studio and the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. The music in this episode was written and recorded by Harris Codini. Stay tuned for a new episode every week. You can find This Is Democracy on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. See you next time.